Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, we're here to talk about Jack. The fourth book in the, well, now... We're calling it the Gilead series? Marilyn Robinson's Gilead series? Is that what we're I, calling this? We need a name, I guess. I think so, yes. Yeah. I'm, I think that I will be referring to it as the Gilead books. Yeah, series. Yeah. I think at some point, we still, there's a lot of complications that come out of this one. I think it does change my understanding of what the series is about a little bit. I don't think mm-hmm. it's radically recensored it in some degrees, but I'm thinking about new things. I have to admit, I didn't reread all four. Did you reread all four? I did. Yeah, you're better than... I did Gilead, and I thumbed through Lila, because I didn't remember it much at all. Mm-hmm. And then I read Jack. So there's where I am with Yeah, it, you know, I actually I discovered in my reading of home, the second one that I don't think I actually read that one back in the day. Mm. So I reread. Yeah. And I don't know how that happened, but I reread Gilead for probably like the fifth time. Mm. Then I read home for the first time. And this was my first time going back to Lila since it was published a few years ago. Yeah. Um, How did you find that? How did you find, we're not going to spend too much time on Gilead except the other books, except that it may inform some of the stuff about Jack. You want to do, well, let's take a sponsor break and we'll come back and do that. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read, and I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer, always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. 
But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. What was your reaction experience of going back to reread Gilead again and then some of the others for the first time? You know, Gilead is one of those touchstone books for both of us, I know, that there's not there's not a bad time in life to go back to that book. But this was a really good time. Mm, Say more about (laughs) in life to go back to it. It's so quiet and it's so gentle and the construction of the whole thing really being an old man reflecting on his life and what he wants his son, who's going to grow up mostly without him, mm-hmm. to know about the world and contemplating contemplating existence. Existence comes up a lot in Lila. Um, but contemplating like what this is all about being here. And yeah. it's mostly small, beautiful things. And it's mostly relationships. And I these are all things that I, you know, would tell you are co- sort of fundamental to who I am and how I mm. think about life on most days. But especially in like, a really difficult year for a variety of reasons and a time that we're like confined to our houses with just the people that we have close relationships with. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really nice sort of it, like grounding moment to go back to that book and think about um, think about love in its big capacities and think about grace and think about what it means to live in the world. And I think there's a moment where Reverend Ames says near the end of the book, something about like, I sure have loved this world. Mm. Um, I know. I know. <laughs> How far will we make it into this before one or both of us cries? <laughs> I was muted. It might be too late. It might be too late, Rebecca Shinsky. I know. Does that have to be know. on tape? There's like, I'm getting teary. Um, it just it felt really good to go back to Gilead and it yeah. spent, I just love the voice of that book so much. And it was, it did my heart good to spend time with Reverend Ames again. And then to go into home, which apparently I've never read before and <laughs> <laughs> discover that it's what I think Margaret Atwood calls it a meanwhile, where like yeah. in home, we're inside Botton's house, basically at the same time that the action of Gilead is taking place. And Glory is there taking care of her father as he's aging and moving toward his death. And Jack returns home and we see them interacting with each other. And we get to see through that lens some of the interactions that Jack tells Reverend Ames about in Gilead or some of the things that yeah. Botton tells Reverend Ames about in Gilead and this tension between uh, between Jack and between um, Botton sort of mm-hmm. comes out. Um, and then Lila, you know, I think Lila in this reading and then going into Jack also shifted my thinking about yeah. what the series is about. So we can, I think, get yeah, into that. Yeah, we can go to that. I guess we should say, for those of you who've never read any of them, just a quick, you don't have to know much plot. Um, it's set in and around, I mean, Gilead is the Gilead of Iowa. Um, Gilead, the book, remains the jewel, a jewel mm-hmm. among jewels here, I think. Um, and that starts out, Reverend Ames is an older um, a 70-ish plus pastor um, 
and he's writing his son. He has a young wife, and so then a young son who he knows will outlive him, um, just because that's how the way math and human <laughs> life works. And that's a you know it's kind of a testament, right? The test the, the testament of, of of Reverend Ames is kind of how I think about that book. But mm-hmm. then the side pieces we get from that are about his friend, another pastor in town. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a pastor in the Gilead Tritology. <laughs> There's pastors all over the place. Um, but his his friend Jack. Uh, or John Boughton, um, is also a pastor who's the great torment of his life is the prodigalness of his son, Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has his own, I think, I think Reverend Boughton has his own demons and everything else like that. Um, the Reverend Ames's wife is named Lila, who is a younger, less educated person. You know, I think is portrayed as more of a working class kind of gal. Um, but I think we get a lot more complexity from her in Lila than we get in, in the book Gilead. And I think that's one of the attributes that I wouldn't have guessed coming out of mm-hmm. Gilead is the internal world mm-hmm. of these characters taken by turn. I don't have a good antecedent for it in American letters of a series written in this way with this kind of rotating perspective where each character gets their own book. Now you get like John Dos Passos or you get of the USA trilogy or you get Steinbeck or even some of the Morrison that moves around like in Paradise I'm thinking of. But where the mm-hmm. series is taking one of the characters and giving them their whole point of view is unusual. And then and then uh, Home, as you said, is Glory, which is um, Jack's sister, Glory, one of the Boughton children who is, I guess, the dutiful daughter if we, if we yeah. have to typecast people. And then Jack here is the prodigal son. Um, who we, spoiler alert, I guess from here on out, knows will come back to visit his father. But in the telling of it, we're getting this period of his life where he falls in love, um, where he is out there um, trying to be mostly harmless, to use a Douglas Adams mm-hmm. term that I think Jack uh, th- that Jack would like. And we know eventually he will go back to see his father with his bride in tow. But this is the story of how Jack returns how jack finds some center it seems in his life there's still a lot we don't know about um his relationship with della and his future life um but that's kind of the story and the plot such as it is in the first three books i don't even know that plot is relevant right it's Mm -hmm. their ruminations their observations there are chronicles of feeling um, and of perspective as much as our plot, whereas Jack is much more plot heavy than any of the ones we've seen. It's a romance, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> though not a capital R romance because, well, I guess if you know, I guess it kind of <laughs> depends, right? If you've come, if you've read the first three books, you you know it's a capital R romance, where if that includes the foreknowledge, foreknowledge of a happy for now, right, Rebecca? Do I have this mm-hmm. right? If I've come into Jack, I know they're going to get together and as far as we know, be okay. I mean, it's it's not forever, but as far as we know, I suppose. Yeah, I think I would really just question the happy part of mm. that assessment because the relationship is it exists in a world where it's very difficult for them to be, yeah, happy, um, or where it's perpetually in conflict. Like they are not in conflict with each other, but um, the relationship is in conflict with society at the yeah. time. Yeah, so I'm not. I don't know that. I don't well, know. Well, would you say they're happy with each other? I, I mean, think, is that yes, ca- that's yes. I think that's fair, right? I think yeah. that is fair, yeah. And yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. I haven't read anything 
like this in you know, American literary fiction mm. that takes the characters in this way and moves the story around. Um, I'll have to find the link for the show notes, but there's a great New Yorker profile of Marilyn Robinson a couple of weeks ago that mm. made the comparison of taking these four stories together. It's, it's less of a series where you know like one book moves into the into the next one or where they progress upon each other and more like the gospels where you have four mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, right and i was like why have i never thought of that <laughs> like of course yeah, like i said the testament of reverend names i've been yeah. saving all the jack stuff to read i have that i have that profile bookmark so i'm very much yeah, looking forward to that especially if you're saying that yeah it's a wonderful profile and the as soon as the writer mentions this, that, oh, this is like the Gospels, where you're seeing some but not all of the same events through different people's yeah. perspectives, and they get ascribed different meaning and different intent. It's like, oh, that's right, you know, because we get Gilead, and at the end of Gilead, Jack you know, confesses some things to Reverend Ames mm-hmm. about his life. Then in Home, we see, you know, Jack and Glory's experiences with Boughton up close, and then in Lila, we get her perspective, and Jack is in the periphery of that book also. Um, mm. And then in Jack, it's, you know, his own story and his reflections and little things and thoughts that he has about his father sort of directly in his own words or as close as we'll get yeah. to his own words. He's not the narrator, but in that close third person um, narration that Robinson does. And that um, gospel way of thinking about it I'm, yeah, gl- I'm glad I that I read helpful. that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I read mm-hmm. that going into Jack. It definitely helped um, reframe my thinking about what was this going to be, um, particularly because all the stuff in the book in Jack happens like before the action of Gilead happens. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's right. Um, such as it's it is. It's a prequel, so we, weirdly. It's a pre- yeah. I, never, I didn't put that together, but it is a prequel of things unseen. Um, yeah, really. that said, yeah. I, I think for listeners, you have to read these books in order. <laughs> Like, I mean, you have to read Gilead first. I don't. I, I think you could do Lila Home if you wanted to flip flop those. Do you yeah, think? Yeah. Again, well, yeah, you've read I mean, them more frequently I, than I have. Well, I did that accidentally. <laughs> really, <laughs> fair, reading, fair, fair, which fair. that's true. Yeah. Um, I think that you can see. I've been thinking about them as like Gilead and Home are kind of a pair, um, because yeah. or they are a pair because Home just provides a different perspective on functionally the same period of time that Gilead's Mm -hmm. presenting. And then Lila is mostly, or in large part, a prequel to Gilead because we are learning about Lila's life as a young person and then gradually how she meets the Reverend and their life um, really just up until their son is born. And the son is like seven when Gilead Mm -hmm. is written. And then we have Jack, and I think Lila and Jack are a pair, that Lila is about this person who spent their early life with a lot of struggle and discomfort and is trying to make sense of what it is now to be in a place where there's comfort and belonging. And then Jack is a story about a person who had access to all of the comforts and a family that wanted to love him but couldn't settle into that and sort of was perpetually alienated and outsider. Mm -hmm. And they make an interesting pair. I'd be curious, I mean, maybe you could tell me your own interpretation or way what that profile said, but you know, the thing about mm-hmm. the Gospels is they are different perspectives, different people, people, let's not get into bibliology, <laughs> um, you know, relating different angles, different series of stories, different takes on the story of, of Christ. What is the Gospel? What is the shared story that these four Gospels are telling 
I think is a fascinating question mm. and super not obvious to me. Um, and maybe bear some discussion, right? It's the gospel of what? The testament of Ames, the testament of Jack, the testament of glory, the testament of Lila, but of what? The test- Testifying as to what? The existence and deeds of Jesus Christ? No. The existence and deeds of what? The questions of what? The stories of what? I, You know, this is the kind of thing where I, still in the classroom, I would design the course <laughs> around, right? These four together, mm-hmm. and you'd read the, like, Look, this is catnip for me. This book, it's this series. This book in particular, there's close reading of poetry in it, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. I there's know, I know. Hamlet. There's there's black poetry from the early 20th century in the form of Paul Dunbar. Uh, it's I cannot recommend this to other people because I don't know how not to recommend it to anyone but myself. Though I think. I think it's interesting to you. That said, I mean, maybe if we do the the thing we, I guess we should do is like, is it good? Did we like it? I thought it was fascinating and I thought it could have been better. Um, mm. I thought the opening scene is mesmerizing and enchanting and very well done. Um, to quote what a lot of my students critique of Hamlet later into the book, enough already with Jack with the <laughs> monologuing, I think. Um but that said, I find myself provo- provoked by it and reminded of, again, of the complexity and beauty of this series. And I guess the other thing is that I don't think this is the last one we're going to get. I don't think it ends here. I, it, it doesn't make sense. Now, again, if you think of it in terms of testaments, what, the, what, how many Gospels are there? Five? Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, John. I guess there are four. Yeah, there's four. So in that regard, maybe that's enough. But I feel like we still have one layer. We have the kids here. It's not just Jack. We have... We have Lila and Ames's kid, right? We have mm-hmm. Jack and Della's that, oh, kid. Oh, yeah, the next generation. We could always think of it. There might be a generational one or two uh, still to come. We could get Della's story, though we get a lot of it here. I don't. It feels like there's not as much room for a whole Della story unless we get up to the point where she meets Jack. How about your, what's your, it feels silly mm-hmm. to evaluate these knowing how much we enjoy this series, <laughs> but as its own, I mean, what would you say about the strengths and weaknesses of Jack yeah. in relation to the other books is you one know, way of thinking about it. I think that, I mean, Jack, I think, begins in a much less straightforward way Mm -hmm. than especially Gilead does. And it's to me, it has that in media mess thing that we talk about that you're just sort of dropped right into the scene. And there's Jack and uh, Della are wandering around the cemetery at night together and referring to something that happened between them in the past where he stole a book, but we yeah. don't quite know what that moment was and they keep referring to it and it's confusing. And that, that worked for me because, you know, I know that Marilyn Robinson is eventually going to tell us the thing. And I felt really torn between enough already with the monologuing. And also mm-hmm. I thought that I thought it was really useful as a device for, helping us understand how this character sees himself and really there's such a sharp contrast between how Botton thinks of Jack and how Jack thinks of himself and Mm. this like the stories that they are telling about who Jack is that like functionally this is a man who is an alcoholic and is dealing with serious depression yeah. And doesn't have that language for it because it's the time period that it is. Um, he's come out of prison. He's knocking around St. Louis. He thinks of himself as a bum uh, or that if he like, you know, shines it on a little bit, he nicknames himself Slick. But he Slick. also refers <laughs> he refers to like the naked man inside his clothes. Um, uh. 
and calls himself the Prince of Darkness repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And it, it is like, ugh, enough already. But if you've been around people who are dealing with those issues, it has that same feeling of like, there it's this sort of circular rumination, like perseveration on a, on a spiraling spot. And a, of a kind. Yeah, you know? and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like a certain way of understanding themselves that might really be in conflict with the way that other people understand them or see them. But he's just like convinced that it's inevitable that he's going to ruin everything, yes, whether he wants right. to or not. And he is so aware of what a disappointment he was to his father. Mm -hmm. And the, the fact that like his brother, Teddy, leaves money for him and is trying to care for him in a way that I think at one point he calls it he, Teddy has illusionless compassion like he mm. just feels totally seen in a way that's uncomfortable um mm -hmm. by his brother or, or that he knows his brother really sees him and that it's not flattering um so I I think from that reading I really risk if that's what Marilyn Robinson is trying to do and I don't know but to me it felt like that with this repetition of how Jack talks about himself and how we know that he thinks about himself. Like that's what it feels like sometimes to be around a person who's in that place is like, Oh my God, you can't get out of thinking about this. You can't get right. out of this yeah. one way of understanding yourself. And like, we can get into like, you know, the stuff that happens later in the book later, but I think like the, that's really illuminating to understand that like he gets chances to have other experiences and other ways of life and he cannot help but fulfill this prophecy he's made about himself that I'm going to ruin it. Mhm. Mm yeah, I think mimetically you're right that representationally if and I would make a case for it myself frankly even if I didn't particularly enjoy the experience of how do you portray that kind of spiraling, that kind of despondency, that kind of stuckness, that kind of feeling of lack of agency, and the icing on the dread cake of the knowledge <laughs> of what's kind of happening, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's one thing to be blithely wicked. That's not who Jack Botton is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was a new revelation to us, is his internal world. Yeah. Um, well, I guess in Ames, we didn't... He comes to Ames as a sort of confessional in Gilead, and it's a very moving moment, right? And he's, mm -hmm. we see that he's tried to do that before in other contexts, to be, he wants to be absolved in a lot of cases. Um, he wants absolution, if not forgiveness, uh, and then absolution, and he doesn't get it. And the thing, you know, I think one of the, one of the great questions as a secular work of Christian ideology, I think, is how do you deal with a lot of the questions of Christianity in a secular world? And his is how does one forgive? What mm -hmm. does one deserve to be um, forgiven? What is the difference between a sin and a crime? Um, how does one live a path of goodness, if not righteousness? How does one live well, if not on the straight and narrow? Right? Mm -hmm. um, I think Dell and Jack are asking those similar questions. And I do think it gives you something to feel the torment he feels. Um, as a reading experience, I feel like I kind of got it, but maybe dwelling in it does something different too. I th I'm going to hold open that possibility. Mm -hmm. I think, especially when compared to spending time with the thoughts of Reverend Ames, which is so pleasurable, right? To, to, to linger on the lines is such a different experience. You don't want to linger on Jack's thoughts. Mm -mm. You don't want to. You want to linger on his repartee with Della, which I think you know is, is pretty great on the whole. Um, but it, when it's just him, I mean, there's this. There's some really good set pieces here. The cemetery, he, we'll talk about in a minute maybe, when we get to him and Della's relationship, and he and Della's relationship in particular. 
But there is this there is this scene where he's picked up some uh, itinerant work playing the piano at a dance studio <laughs> and like being the male partner for women who are learning how to dance or practicing or dance or just dancing for fun. He's given keys to the studio. And so he's sitting in this dark room full of mirrors, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. it's a little on the nose for self-reflection in darkness, maybe, uh, as these things go. But it does open up in something, and he talks about how terrible it is for him to be left alone looking at himself. And I think that is the great torment of himself, is to know his own shortcomings, to desire in a way to be better, but also not want to be better um, at the same time. Or not... He would like to be, he would like to be thought, he would like to do well, but the avenues of goodness available to him do not appeal or do not hold any water for mm-hmm. him. So he's, he's shiftless in that there is no shift for him to find that feels right. That feels like he can both serve his own desires, his own way of understanding the world, his own questions, his own harmlessness without um, being a criminal, without being a bum, that to use his language, without being someone who's looked down upon, around, and seen through. What other modes of being are there? Do I have to be a preacher or a bum? Right. Yeah, there's a moment when he's thinking of, I can't remember where this falls in the book, but when he's thinking about how when defects of character are your character, you become a what? You know, like the, Mm. and he goes into some examples of that, but he's just so deeply convinced of this that he is just deficient in all ways when really as we see him he's just a person who's like trying very hard to not screw things up at every turn and sort of can't help himself but also reflects at one point you know that he's a shabby outsider who's self-orphaned and i thought that was really interesting Mm. um you know, he even says, it's never been my nature to do what I ought to do for my own sake, even. And mm-hmm. just kind of can't quite get there to, he can see maybe the path. I think you're right. He can see the paths that are available, but none of them feel like paths he could actually walk and be happy. And mm-hmm. there's like real suicidal ideation through yes. the story that, that that was a surprise to me. Yeah. Um, you know, that we didn't ha- I didn't have any sense of that from the earlier books that I we know that this is a troubled character, but I didn't have any sense of really what the depths of that suffering were for mm-hmm. him. And there's a there's a moment when he and Della are in the cemetery and he says I'm a simple man who was brought up by a complicated man. And I thought, you know, Mm. Botten would have described this exactly the opposite way. Botten would describe himself as a simple man who brought up a complicated son. And Mm -hmm. I think that fundamental disconnect, you know, Gilead is about a father and a son. I think really Jack is also about a father and a son. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And it's notable that Botten's absent from these pages entirely. Yeah that that disconnect of understanding himself of feeling like he belongs in the place you're you're supposed to belong first with your family he just can't quite belong anywhere and it's really deeply deeply painful to him in a way that um i think robinson really gets across and was not something that i was expecting from his story based on the ways that he shows up and the ways the other characters describe him so they also don't see this or understand this about him yeah they see in him the other characters see him as sort of radical freeness right that's that's hedonistic narcissistic you know existing outside the bounds of their moral universe where 
from Jack's point of view, it's everything. But he, he, he. I don't know if he would. He would be happier could he cut the bond, the familial bonds mm-hmm. to his family, right? I mean, he even he says, you know, I, I wouldn't commit suicide not while my father's alive. Well, that's so fascinating in so many ways, a way right? of putting it, because I think if then if his father was dead, he would be released from some of the guilt, some of mm-hmm. the weight of knowing he's a constant source of his father's perturbations, right? At least that would be over. Would he Would he feel some, some weight lifted or not? The only thing he can see is he would be free then um, to end his own kind of suffering where, you know, one of the most affecting things to me in all of these stories, and again, I'm a good Midwesterner, son of Protestants, um, is that thing talked about uh, probably more directly in River Run Through, which reminds me a lot of the dynamics in, in Jack, actually, mm. in, in Gilead and the whole, of um, when Tom Skerritt's character, Reverend McLean, says, you know, I, I, I would give, oh Lord, to those I love if only I knew what to give. Yeah. You know, if only Jack could give his father... That would would make him happy. If only Reverend Botton could offer his son um, what it is he needed. If only Reverend Ames could speak to his own son. If only Glory, if only Dell, you know, if only they want to be able to express and connect with the people in their lives, but they can't because of we're humans um, and we're afraid. But also there are structures and moral universe is constructed that prevents it from happening. Here we get in the boldest terms, right? Mm -hmm. We get a racial barrier with the statutes being read at dinner, which I thought was an affecting moment of the seriousness of the situation where, you know, Della's father, who is probably the single most respected figure in his community of any character we get here. He's not just a small town Gilead Methodist, right? He's a big AME pastor in Memphis, one of the mockers in his community, and he says, you know, this is this these are the lines. And if you cross them, there are consequences. And I think that's true for all of them. And who's willing to cross what lines for what? I think is is what is what Jack brought to me about mm-hmm. th- these series. It shows to me what lines Lila crossed. Um what lines Glory didn't. What mm-hmm. lines Ames crossed. What lines Botton wouldn't. Um and there was a very, the color line, I think, as makes sense, is both real and metaphorical for the kinds of lines that are constructed by us and for us that prevent us from, you know, seeking our heart's desire or being fully available to those that we care about and fully able to pursue our, our innermost wants and dreams. And some of them are real, you know, some of them, and but some of them are constructs which is faith and which is presumption, which is the real McCoy and which is the thing constructed. And I think that's the thing that ultimately spoke to me the most is what is preventing you from living your fullest life? Which of those are real? Which of them are not? Um, That may still have consequences. And how do you deal with those? What are you willing to wager on that which you desire and what that where you're not willing to wager? Yeah, I think there's real tension, especially in Jack, between the constructed moral universe and the principles that people ascribe to and the outcomes of ascribing to those principles. Like the, um, the pastor, I think Reverend Hutchins that Jack meets in St. Louis, uh, who is both kind and unkind to Jack Mm -hmm. about his relationship with Della. Um, 
it's just another encounter with a man of the cloth who is unkind to him behind the guise of the church, really. And Jack has this moment thinking these men of high principle made him feel pretty harmless from time to time. And he's looking at like, you you know, you you think you're so high and mighty, basically, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or that like, or you're so you're so certain that you're right. um, because of this position and because you're because you're a pastor, because you have the church um, looking up to you behind you, but the ways that you're behaving are harming me a person and Botten certainly has done that to Jack his entire life you know and Jack knows like if I showed up and my father saw me do this he would just put his face in his hands and pray you know yeah and, right and what that does to a, a child and then ultimately to a person growing up is create that sense of of disconnect and he's looking at his father and he's looking at Della's father as people saying that they value these principles and these constructed moral ideas more than and they value the actual human in front of them even yeah. if that's not the decision that they think they're making that's the way that it plays to him and a source of real harm uh, to mm-hmm. him and and i just i think ultimately robinson is so concerned with how we how do we make sense of you know commitment to higher principles and humanity mm-hmm. and like how do you be a person in the world how do you live is one of the big questions that jack asks and the answer i think we that we get from reverend ames and gilead and also just all throughout these pages in jack is grace and yeah. wrestling with what the last um, word of the book grace yeah in jack Here yeah with you know not grace as in um well, maybe elegance. for some of the, <laughs> I mean, yeah, not great, yeah, right. right? Yeah, not grace is an elegance, and not grace is in a gift from God bestowed onto people necessarily, but grace from one human to another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is, that that yeah. idea, you know, I, the the Wes, I grew up Methodist. Their Methodism mm-hmm. is in here, um, and grace is the central tenet of Wesleyanism. This idea that the always already of your relationship to the divine is one of grace. That there's nothing you you can do or not do not to be not not to be the recipient of God's grace and that's a different kind of christianity too right one that isn't felt here it's not one that is extended to jack right um by by his father um by maybe by teddy i think it's interesting to look where are the moments of grace in all of the books you know where where do we mm. where do we see robinson portraying a fundamental grace that exists outside of a religious paradigm. I think what's new in this book, too, is a real formulation of what it means to be a principled tyrant, either from a, mm. from a community, from the law, from an individual person, right? Because the, the, the specter of systemic racism is as good and as a real and enduring example of a principled tyranny as we we still have in America mm-hmm. today, and even then, and it's very present here. Yeah, it's it's not. No one's get. I mean, we almost get a scene in which Lila is arrested, or Lila Della is arrested, and Jack is arrested for spending this night in the graveyard. There's a lot of there's a lot of subterfuge of how we. You could end up in jail. You could be strung up mm-hmm. um, if this comes to light. And that is one end of the principled tier. I mean, there is a principle there. That's a terrible one, but there's a principle there, and it's tyrannical and violent. But there are other kind of principles too, right? About right action, right behavior. Right. So much talk about clothes in this one. Didn't you notice mm, that? Yeah. How, how many how many times he's got to worry about what he looks like and what his hair is and is he shaved? Does he stink? 
And that's the sort of the more banal tyranny of conformity, right? That mm-hmm. he has to look and act and be in a certain way that's pretty valueless, all things considered, right? He, to be, he can't just be harmless. He has to conform. Right. right. He's not given the space to... The only space he can take for himself, which exists outside of a moral universe, is to sleep in doorways drunk. Like, he finds the one available resource, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my interpretation of it, at least. Mm-hmm. Where else do you want to go? Ooh. Let's take a break. Yeah, take let's a take a break. break. Sponsor break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk about race. Yeah. I think we mentioned on this show when I was um, wildly gesticulating into a microphone, because it's a useful <laughs> thing to do on the podcast about the, Jack's very existence, and then figuring out, and then understanding and sort of comprehending what the plot must be or could be, um, that it's about Jack entering into an interracial relationship um, in St. Louis in the 1940s and all that that entails that there was um, a danger of it not being handled well. How did you think the specter of race, racism, the portrayals of black people, um, how'd it go for you? I think specter is the perfect word here for Mm. how Robinson uses the systemic racism and literal segregation of society and the all of the difficulty that that sets up between Jack and Della. And as you said, it begins in that, you know, early scene in the cemetery um, overnight where they have to worry, not just that Della will be arrested for having spent the night out in the cemetery. And presumably it's a white cemetery. That yes. she's, yeah, it is. That she's, uh, yeah, yeah that is. she's not supposed to be in, but mm-hmm. how it's going to impact her as a respectable black woman. If she is seen out wandering around with this sort of bum of a white man, um, it, she's a teacher, she has a good job and she's being sort of repeatedly perpetually reminded by the people around her that she can't be seen with this person. It will damage her to be seen out with him. Like it's damaging to her reputation, even if she doesn't end up in jail. Um, When Jack has that moment near the end of the book where he tells his landlady for some reason, you know, he decides to tell her my wife is a colored woman and she kicks him out immediately and like threatens to call the cops. That feels very present. We see them go to the bus station separately near the end and he sits in the white section of the bus station and she sits in the colored section. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, it's so pervasive in this world that they live in that it doesn't have to be like knock you over the head overt you know like no one has to drop a sign down in this book that's like by the way this book happens in a racist universe because Mm -hmm. just you know america is, is still a country just plagued and defined by systemic racism and even more so 50 years ago when this is set that you can't describe what the country would have been like. You can't describe the bus station without describing just the the parts of it that were real and that were there. And I think the way it comes out between Jack and Della and in Jack's understanding of what he's doing in their relationship, there Mm. was a quote that 
that really struck me where he's thinking about how she could be careless because she was the one with something to lose and he would have to be cautious his least impressive most wearisome quality in any case let alone now that his loyalty was being tested because every risk he took was a threat to her and he understands that they're both risking something in having this relationship but she's really the one who's risking her life um, to in in the literal sense um, to to be with him and that they talk about it with each other and they reflect on it and you can hear you know her community is very concerned yes. about this for her um that i thought was handled with a lot of uh, sensitivity and it felt very believable to me mm-hmm. um, i did like the string of visits from yeah. her family members from memphis to come both look at him and try to scare him away and try to scare some sense into della i mean it's like you know, the central thing, you know, there's a meet cute, weirdly, in this book mm-hmm. where um, ba- uh, Jack is, for reasons that don't matter, wearing nicer clothes than he normally does and sees Della struggling in the rain with some stuff and helps him, like in a, a moment of small chivalry. And they hit it off. I don't know there's another way to put it. I don't need to know any more complicated than that, that they like each other. Um, and they circle around each other and... There's, you know, there's almost the classic arc of a rom-com where there's an Mm -hmm. obstacle, which is he gets found by some loan sharks, I guess, or someone owns money and he has to duck out on her. And she takes it real. She she understands and misunderstands and then later has a chance. He has a chance to explain and she kind of pantomimes not wanting to forgive him or maybe she doesn't. (laughs) I don't know. I kind of I saw it through the lens of a rom-com where there's a feigned there's a feigned um, insult. Right, or it's played up to some degree mm-hmm. to to have something to talk about, um, but the truth is they like each other, and the truth is it's no more it's no more understandable or complicated than that. And I'm not sure if it's a metaphor for anything or not. I think maybe it could be. You could see it as a way. What if you just want something that the world doesn't want you doesn't want mm-hmm. you to want? Um, whether that's a way of being, whether that's a romantic partner. Um, whether it's the way you look or what you choose to do, what do you do? Because the options are open to him. Like he, he goes through the various sort of like Raskolnikov is mentioned here in Crime and Punishment. And one yeah. of the great Dostoevsky things is there is that Raskolnikov, there's several different ways of being in that book presented in the form of several different characters, the rascal, the villain, the, you know, um, the Svidrigailov, the con man. Here, Jack plays out all of those characters at different times. There is the kind of working man working in the shoe store kind of doing his thing there's the bum there's the poet there's the man of god who goes to church uh there's the secular priest of the bookstore right who has a nice little pad and and enjoys all the privileges of living within the lane but the thing he wants is her and the thing she wants is him and there's no good reason for them not to be together there are practical ones there's no moral reason for them not to be together. There's no reason that they believe. I think we are not even led to believe that her family thinks there's some existential problem with their being together. It's all danger. It's danger imposed by Mm -hmm. others is the problem. And Jack says, I believe my father would welcome me with weeping open arms if I came home with her, right? It's just the world. The only problem, their only problem is the world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Ain't that the truth? Yeah. And, 
as much as he knows what the quote unquote right thing to do, and so does she. They both know the right thing mm-hmm. to do. They both know the and the right and the safe, I think, is another way of thinking about this. The harmlessness is a safety for him of not hurting himself or the world, though he has a tendency to want to break things that he sees as fragile. He's the kind of guy that leans over the edge and kind of wants to jump off it. Um, he has a he has something breakable in his hand and he kind of wants to smash it. His own small rebellion exists in that mm-hmm. way. It's not a great rebellion. He's not a he's a criminal, but not a villain. Uh, he sins, but he's not a sinner. I think is a way to think about it. And I think that is really interesting how they come to the same crossroads from different points of view, mm-hmm. but structurally they have the same understanding of what. The, the deal is. Yeah, there's a moment when they're talking about this with each other and Jack is like, you know, you might lose your family yep. over this. And Della says, there are some things you just can't owe to other people. Mm. And she has that, I think, deep sense of conviction that she knows what she's risking in her familial sense and in risking her life to be a black woman, yeah. you know, living and married to... A white man. I thought just as a, an aside, all of the ways that they talk about their marriage to each other and understand yes. that it can't be a legal marriage, but they believe it to be a real and true spiritual mm. union. And some of the char- some of the other characters push back against that, and some of them don't question it. it was just mm-hmm. re- a really interesting thing that Robinson did there. But she, Della, has this understanding that like she's looked at all the consequences and decided to use the language of harm, that the harm to her is greater of not being with this person that she loves. And I think that's language that Jack just can't quite get to for himself, that he's so consumed with trying to be harmless to the world and harmless to her that um, he's, he just feels this gravity, this like pull to be with her and he's happier with her than not. It's kind of the only time that he has any sense of belonging anywhere. But I don't think we see him quite get to the place of like, it would be more harmful to me to not be with this woman. Yeah. It feels like they're making, they're making like slightly different choices to end up in the same place. Well, I think he doesn't have the language of it, nor should he given the time period, but he's aware of his own privilege related Mm -hmm. to her Mm -hmm. where, you know, he could walk away and, and we see him walk away. And that's sort of the great sin of Gilead is him as he gets this young girl pregnant and walks away and then, and then the child dies. Like, that's his original sin, sort of, that, yeah. that a lot of the rest of the stuff spins out from. Um, he knows that he might be put in jail, but he's not going to be lynched, right? Yeah. I think ultimately he knows that the hazard is unequal. And at the same time, wouldn't they all be happier of the characters if they could be okay with letting the people they love hazard their life to find the thing that mm. they want? So mm-hmm. much of it is about feeling like I don't want you to be hurt, so I'm going to judge, withhold, punish, silence you in our relationship because I don't want you to get hurt. I don't. Your happiness is not the thing I care about. And maybe I, I mean maybe this is the parent in me now that I didn't think about when I was reading Gilead. But my first goal, and I think most parents' first goal should and is, for most of the time, to keep safe. But at some point that becomes um, damaging to everyone involved, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because the po- is the point of life to be safe or is it to be happy? 
And if you can't be both, which do you choose? And I think Glory, Lila, Ames, Boughton, Jack, Della all have different, slightly different answers to that equation. Yeah, yeah. I think that tension between what is safe and what's good for you, <laughs> or, or yeah. how do you even, how do you even understand what's good for you beyond being safe and having sort of right. basic needs met is really core to these books. And um, there's a line in Gilead that like is my, maybe my favorite line in all of literature. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, like, I don't know. We had it like in a thing at our wedding. It's part of my master password to stuff like mm. um, where. Don't Bob, be creepy. Where, don't be creepy. <laughs> yeah, Don't be creepy folks. Uh, where Reverend Ames is. Uh, he's consumed throughout Gilead with this concern about being a good husband to Lila, to this woman that he never expected to have in his life and being a good father. And am I really worthy of this family and of this happiness that has come to me? And how can I be good to these people? And, um, and deserving of this woman that he loves so much, mm -hmm. but also doesn't really understand, you know, they don't really understand <laughs> each other. Very right. Much. Yeah, yeah. And, um, he says, love is holy because it is like grace. The worthiness of its object is never really what matters. Mm. And like, I feel like that's what Marilyn Robinson wants us to get from these books. Like, it's that concept that everybody is trying to, like, do the right thing and be deserving of their place in the family or deserving yeah. of their place in society. But the truth of belonging and love and connection is that it has nothing to do with you're earning it. And Jack, I think is learning that with Della because there's, you know, there's a moment when he's like trying to tell her how bad of yeah. a man he is. And she's like, don't you know, you're like everybody else, yeah. <laughs> you know, like he's just struggling. Like everybody else is struggling, but he experiences it as so unique. And she sees through that. And she sees this person that like this experience of, I'm going to love you, not despite Mm. who you are but just because i'm just gonna love you just because is that experience of grace to him and it's the place that like that Boughton can't quite get to can't with quite get there no. yeah they can't connect with each other it's a a place that you know lila just sort of lives into i think with mm. reverend ames without much thought about it she's just she meets this person and she's drawn to him and they get married <laughs> like mm -hmm. but i think we can see a lot of connection between the relationships between ames and lila and jack and della in yeah. um in these women really just embracing the man that comes into their life in a way that is that is about grace that's about we're going to love and feed each other but you don't have to earn it, it mm -hmm. you're just you and that's what i want and i think dell and jack even sort of talk about this at one point of yeah. like you know once you look at somebody and see them and connect and know that they see you you can't unsee that about that person yeah. and you can't forget that feeling and yeah. they're they're choosing that over all of the safe things yeah, and it's, you know, one of the reasons Ames can write the testament of Ames to his son is that his son doesn't provide any friction yet. It provides no moral friction that, mm -hmm. you know, he's not a he's not an adult. He's not even, you know, on the precipice of adulthood. He is just a boy. Right. Um, and, it, you know, I know from my own experience, that's an easy thing to love. It gets complicated when those paths diverge and those understandings and differences grow and the angle as the as the line grows, so does the angle. The small angles come into real; um, they become vertices, and they become 
um, points of possible conflict and intersection. And the sweetness of Ames, he is afforded a kind of never having to know his son as an adult, like mm-hmm. Botton does. And that's mm-hmm. one thing that was struck to me here. What a what a tragedy for Ames. He sees it as a kind of tragedy, but it's also a kind of like, don't you think that Botton would change places with him to only know Jack as a boy, right? Mm-hmm. To sort of keep that eternal innocence that neither receives nor needs grace of any kind. Right. Um, and it only becomes difficult when you are the one that has to say, you know what, I'm going to forego, slough off, um, let pass over me my instinct to judge or control or to advise or to otherwise interfere with the direction of your being. Um, now, there are limits, of course, if someone's hurting other people. Like, we're not saying all things are permitted, I don't think, here. I don't think no. Robinson. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's telling that the natures of Jack's, the nature of Jack's trespasses, I always like the word trespass. It's it, between a <laughs> sin and a crime, between a mistake and a, and a, and a crime, are human and forgivable. Even, even the, the great one of, of, of getting this young woman pregnant um, and abandoning her, not choosing to be with her. It's not clear. I think it's presented it wouldn't be good for any of them to like force. You know, that would have been its own imposition yeah, of yeah. moral code, right? Mm-hmm. But it still happened. He made a mistake. So did she. Um, I think, you know, one thing the book is sort of trying to be careful with Della, especially, this is not Jack imposing his will on someone. If anything, she's staying on, I'm not sure who's fishing for whom a lot of the time, which is one of the great (laughs) things here that's going on. But within a certain envelope of trespassing, there's a lot of room for grace in in Robinson's moral universe, Mm -hmm. um, which I think we could all give each other more of a lot of the time, myself. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we'll ask sponsor break and then we'll, I don't know where else you want to go. As a, as a, as a close reader, hmm. a uh, professor of symbology, if you will. <laughs> do you have on your elbow patches? I do. I have my, the elbow <laughs> patches of my soul. So, <laughs> the graveyard courtship. Wow. <laughs> the symbolism all over the place. They're in St. Louis. You're from St. Louis. You know, as well as anyone. Well, you're not you're around, yeah. you know, whatever, uh-huh. whatever you want to say. I'm St. Louis adjacent. <laughs> yeah, St. Louis adjacent. It's it's fascinating to see the spaces Robinson puts Della and Jack in and together, and then how they move between places, right? St. Louis is the gateway. Like, there are all these, I guess what I'm saying, there's all these transitional spaces that Jack mm. and Della have to exist in these liminal, to use the, 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 uh, the, uh, 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 Machiko phrase that no one gets anymore because she's been retired for now. But these sort of in-betweens on the cusp of spaces, right? They're together in the studio. They're in doorsteps. They're in this graveyard. These places of transition and interlap. They're in St. Louis, the gateway to the West, but also of the Mississippi, which connects the free to the, the free North to the slave South. Um, a place where people can intermingle this, this restaurant that Jack finds that they can go together and I guess feel safe. It was a little unclear how that works. I don't know. I mean, it'd be fascinating to know if these kinds of places actually exist or what they were. But this, there's, there'll be plenty of colored people there. They're playing music. I just thought that was so interesting. The in-between is compared to what we've seen before this, which is in people's homes and at church, right? It's kind of the, those are homes and churches and maybe out on the road on farms. 
But we get a metropolitan space here in these places within the metropolitan space, even where Jack finds himself in these rooming houses, mm-hmm. on buses, in bus stations. He has no, he literally has no place to be because he has no way of being. And so he can't match up. And how much our physical world represents the moral world we've put together. If you have no place in the moral world, there is no place for you in the physical world. So he finds himself washing his bloodstained clothes in the pond in a cemetery. It's like hipster goth stuff. I don't even know what to say about that, right? So that's where my brain was going. That's, that's one thing I really thought was fascinating is that why I haven't had enough time to think about why she chose that scene as being their principal time, their courtship in this whites. They're locked in to a cemetery overnight, a little dark. And there's this before sunrise element to them. Like that's the thing that got me struck was the the, the great um, Linklater series of Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, where mm-hmm. we get them over different courts of life, just walking and talk. It's a big walk and talk for 70 pages. <laughs> I loved it. It is. I loved it too. I loved, I loved that it. she lingered in that place. Of, yeah. And like cemeteries are also gardens <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, in a way. And so they are monuments this, to the past of its own yeah, kind, the monuments of the dead past. I mean, come on. They're in this dark place. It's dangerous. They shouldn't be there. And they they just walk and talk to each other yeah. all night long. And later on, Jack tells her, you know, like, you know, I feel a little guilty because you could have just, like, I could have told you to go talk to the guard at any moment yeah. and the guard would have let you out. We didn't really have to spend all night there. And she says, you don't think I knew that the whole time? Mm-hmm. So, like, we also know that she has maybe put herself in this place because he's mentioned yeah. that he spends time there. So she's trying to bump into him and yeah, it's maybe, charming. It's so like, charming. Cause he's been walking many? by her apartment and she's been yes. watching the window and to see him walk like, by. It's great. How many other nights did Della go over yes, to, to the, the cemetery graveyard. hoping that they would bump into yeah. each other. And just on this mm. night he shows up there and, and they have this and like, I was also thinking about that notion of the spaces where the story takes place and that uh, it's almost always in darkness, both literal and figurative. Yeah, dusks, <laughs> like a lot of there, dusks and dawns, a lot of dusks yeah, and dawns too, Their right? yeah. relationship has to be secret. There can't really be any evidence of it anywhere. Like he, you know, leaves roses out on the front porch at one point or like rose petals get into the bushes and they're mm-hmm. worried that people are going to walk by. The people on her street just, you know, know that that white man hangs around all the time. Like it's both secret and not secret. People are aware that this thing is happening between them. And I think St. Louis is an interesting choice, not just for all of the gateway um, yeah. reasons, but because it's it is one of, it remains one of the most segregated big cities yeah. in the country um, in a really meaningful way that imagining what that would have felt like, you know, 50 or 60 years ago when this is happening and like what it would be like where you would really have to be walking and how long those walks would be and what the transitions between the neighborhoods would be like to walk from, you know, wherever Jack was in the city, in his rooming house, presumably not like a great neighborhood, but then walking into the black parts of the Mm -hmm. city that he knows are about to be condemned and taken with imminent domain for other kinds of use and development. Um, Just a really interesting, uh, I thought it was just really interesting for Robinson to put them in St. Louis rather than to like put Della and Jack in Chicago, which would have been a more liberated experience. Yeah, or Memphis, which would have been even more policed, right? That St. Louis is sort of between those two poles Mm -hmm. of racial experience, like I think is telling, right? There's a reason that there's a reason it works. I did really want like a map of like where everyone was. I mean, I know St. Louis 
a little bit, well, 20 years ago when we used <laughs> to go there from time to time, but like there's a logistics to crossing the racial divide that it would have been interesting. And, you know, no, it's funny that Jack thinks he knows to watch out for racial stuff, but mm-hmm. he has no idea what he's dealing with. Cause Della's whole neighborhood, the whole church that he goes into, that's all black people. He thinks like maybe some people, they all are acutely aware of like a Du Boisian double. They have to mm-hmm. look at him as if they were both white and black at the same time to figure out what he's doing, what he might want, what the dangers are. Um, and I think Robinson is a very, I have to say more of a deft touch there than I might have expected about how to portray the world from Jack's point of view, but also not allied with the black people of the story actually know. And again, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I haven't seen a review um, by a black writer. I'm looking for one. If anyone has one, podcast at bookwrite.com. Yes, but I haven't, I haven't actually, I wanted to save my, my experience of the book um, outside of any reviews. So I'd be, maybe there's something, I'm sure there are things I'm missing, but from my point of view, I was watching for, how is she? How is Robinson going to handle this different perspective that she hasn't had to do before? And I think it feels, um, I think it feels serious and sensitive to what Della and her and her family and her community would have felt, but also not trying to inhabit their point of view. If that makes sense, you yeah, know, that's, I, that's a fine line to walk. I completely agree. I think that's a that's what she does, and that's exactly how I would characterize it that um, I saw one review I think maybe it was Dwight Garner who like tore this apart and was wrong yeah Um, I heard that it wasn't great (laughs) but one of the one of the things that he complained about was that he didn't think that Della was fully drawn or that we didn't get enough of her and I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how the books in this series work um, that Mm -hmm. we never really get a whole lot of the interior life of anybody but the one main character of each book you know like in Gilead part of the part of the story is that we don't know the interior life of other people that's one of the themes we don't even know Lila's name until like the very I don't do we even know it at all in Gilead? If we do, it's like the very end of Gilead. He just talks about his son and his wife. And then in Mm -hmm. home, we find out what his son is named and that his son is named after Boughton. And Mm -hmm. I think it's in home where we find out that Lila is named Lila. That like, he's, he just thinks about his son and his wife and there's other people in his world. And it's right. It's not like that. Ames in that case is particularly selfish. It's just, this is what it's like to be a person inhabiting your one person's brain. You know, like that's my son, that's my wife. And in Jack, we're mostly with him and we don't see moments between Della and her family that where Jack isn't present. This isn't Della's book. And I would be nervous about Robinson writing Della's book because of that, having to inhabit a consciousness Mm -hmm. that isn't her experience. I think that would be, you know, complicated territory. Um, a book from the next generation's perspective of Della and Jack's child would be complicated territory mm-hmm. in the way that like a book by about Robbie Ames would not be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think Della's gets as much, if not more characterization than any of the non main perspectives in any of the books. I think she's as well in fully fresh out, which she gets mm-hmm. more lines of dialogue than any non main yeah. um, character gets in any of the books. So again, I don't think, I agree with that particular reading, especially in the thinking these are the testament of the gospel of Jack, mm-hmm. the gospel of whatever. Um, and she's John the Baptist or whoever she is in that particular. Do you want another Robinson? Do we just take these as many Ooh, as we get? I I don't know. 
I, this feels to me like the conclusion, actually. That, really? Like, yeah. That the, like the specter of Jack really hangs over Gilead. Yeah. It hangs over home. He's present on the periphery. Hangs over and, glory. I mean, very Lila. much over yeah, yeah. Home, and, home, home. Yeah. yeah. And that this gives us his story and the, that switch in perspective of like, this book brings home that we don't understand other people's interior lives. And yeah. from watching him suffer, I think we're reminded of like that we all think that our experiences of you know, feeling like an outsider or feeling alienated or feeling like we don't belong, like that feels unique when it happens to you, but it happens to all of us. Yeah. And the way that Jack experiences it and the way Della calls him out on, you know, you think that you're so special, but everybody has this um, is a big reminder. But it, this feels like the final puzzle piece, at least in these four. I would like to keep reading Marilyn Robinson mm-hmm. from now until Kingdom Come. Um, but I, I think I I feel complete. I would yeah. read another one, but this feels complete to me. I, you know, now I said, I think I agree with you in terms of it's a closing of the loop, right? The, the mystery of Jack is not solved. It's not, it's um, elucidated if not solved. Um, that you end with grace, literally mm-hmm. and figuratively, mm-hmm. is hard to crack open again. I guess in the great in one of our great shared wheelhouses of they get the band back together. Mm-hmm. I guess I kind of want a more of a choral piece over the grave of Reverend Ames. Um, mm. You know, an older Ames dies and the sons are grown up, and Lila and Glory and Boughton and Jack. I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe that's the coda I'm wanting is what happens after. You know the the future history of, of the testaments. What happens to the church, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that, that mm-hmm. this these books construct um, for us. But I will not feel. Sa- I, I'm not going to feel incomplete if it doesn't exist. Frankly, if all I ever got was Gilead, I was good. Yeah, that's true. Rebecca, thank you. Shoot us an email podcast at bookriot.com. Um, I'm not sure what we're doing next. We haven't we haven't decided. We haven't decided. <laughs> I haven't decided. But don't email us because that won't help. <laughs> Talk to you guys next time. Have a good one. Bye.